know, the most important people at Davos are the people that weren't there. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today I'm joined by Laura Jakes, Deputy Managing Editor of FP News. Also with us is Ed Luce, the Financial Times Chief U.S. Commentator and Columnist based in Washington, D.C. Recently, from both our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle and the Slate Group studio in Lower Manhattan's hip village quarters, we had the following conversation. Guys, I just got back from Davos, which I I consider this to be a service to you. I went so you didn't have to go. Wait, did you get Leonardo DiCaprio's autograph or signature or I anything? Didn't, I, there were no Leonardo DiCaprio sightings on my part. I did, however, see the big star of Davos. And let me tell you, it was a humbling experience because that was Justin Trudeau. Laura, how do you feel about Justin Trudeau? I feel good about Justin Trudeau. So did everybody I talked to there, particularly women. Here's my advice for you, Ed, and I mean this for you particularly. Never, (laughs) never stand close to Justin Trudeau. The comparisons will not be flattering. And you're a very, very good-looking guy, Ed. I'm glad you made that follow up, um, but d- don't worry. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go near him. I, I'm not not on any ideological grounds, or journalistic grounds. But he is the best looking leader on the planet. There's no question about that. People were swooning. They were, you know, they were absolutely delighted to be in his presence. And I, at one point, was standing next to him, and I felt as though I had actually been rendered invisible. <laughs> <laughs> Which, frank, frankly, at that point, I was happy to be rendered invisible. I didn't want to be compared with this guy. Now, having said that, you know, I think he had a pretty good Davos. That gets us sort of to the next element of this thing, which is why would anybody go to the other side of the world where the sidewalks are slippery? Poor Anne-Marie Slaughter walked out of her hotel in Davos, stepped on a piece of ice, flew up in the air and broke her arm. Oh. You know, it, you know, it is it is risky business. Let me tell you something else about Davos. Despite the fact that there's a lot of talk about it's all the elites and everything else, the food is lousy. There's never enough food. I, I know people who actually lost five pounds by attending Davos this year due to the walk across the frozen wastelands and the lack of food. And the substance of most of the conversations has less nutritional value than the absence of food. <laughs> Yet, n- nonetheless, more and more people are there. And there are a few things that you know seem to work. One is a guy like Justin Trudeau shows up and people go, oh, he's here and he's, he's making a fairly good impression. And then stories get written back home that say he's a world figure and things are going pretty well for him. It's, you know, it's, so it has that kind of an effect. But you were back in the States watching the news about it. Did anything filter out to you guys? The press about Trudeau has been generally good. I think the Canadian press has accused him of swanning. Um, uh, Their word, not mine, but it's a delightful word. Um, I think that (laughs) some of the people in Canada feel like he is really getting high up on this ivory platform, and they are not afraid to take some shots at him. His uh, quote about don't be afraid of feminists, I mean, there was a lot of talk about the role of women in the workplace, what the fourth industrial revolution will do for women, especially younger women in the workforce, and their job loyalty that I thought was a little alarming um, and worth paying attention to. 
Uh, also, obviously, refugees seemed like it was a huge topic in Davos last week. And that's something it, it seemed like almost everybody in Davos agreed that the refugee problem is a massive problem and something that must be resolved for Europe and the United States. Um, but it doesn't seem like anybody had any good solutions. All right. Well, let me respond to a couple of those things, and then, Ed, you can pick up on them. First of all, Trudeau was the very model of a modern liberal leader, and it did make an impression on people. And I'm going to come back to another liberal leader who made an impression on there a little bit later. As for women and women's issues, that's just nonsense, you know, that if they said that was being discussed. You know, the last two two years ago, I wrote a column following Davos called Where is Davos Woman? Because there were only 16 percent women. Last year, it went up to 17 percent women. And I wrote a column called Where is Davos Women 2? Now I'm in the midst of finishing up one. I'm not going to call it Where is Davos Women 3, but I could because the level of women's participation in this thing stayed roughly the same at 17 or 18 percent. And so while there was some discussion of women's issues, there were plenty of all-male panels. Women were grotesquely underrepresented, as were Asians, as were Africans, as were, you know, millennials that weren't sort of, you know, boot-licking, ass-kissing on their way up, I want to be an elite of tomorrow kind of millennials. Um, and Tell us how you really feel, David. Jeez. Well, you know, it's like the reality is that, you know, the most important people at Davos are the people that weren't there. And in other words, those are the people who are really making a difference. And it's not, by the way, just those. Artists weren't there really well represented. Scientists weren't there well represented. The people who are important to the future of this fourth industrial revolution weren't there. And a bunch of European guys in ties and suits were. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a very, you know, it's, a, it's an earnest, well-meaning discussion. And there's some big shots there. So you learn a little bit from some of the big shots. But it is a very, very, very narrow gauge. How does that jive with what you're hearing, Ed? Well, I, I, you know, as a distant observer, um, a couple of things to say. One is Anne-Marie Slaughter would have been just as likely to break her arm, um, poor thing, in Washington if she'd stayed at home uh, as in Davos because it's been uh, a freeze here. Um, we've all had uh, school snow days and children uh, um, children um, getting cabin fever. That's, that, sounds, that sounds a bit like a personal plaint on your part. It, it is, rather, although <laughs> I love being with my daughter. This is now day six. Um, uh, and she is in your studio, by the way, and is, is your new biggest fan and Twitter follower. Uh, she'll make up for some of the followers you've lost. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the, uh, the second is that, you know, bad food and taking buses and huddling together and all that kind of stuff. I thought that the new self-denying macho usually because they're still male chief executive of today is all about doing iron man and triathlons and all that kind of stuff and and denying themselves pleasure so davos ought actually to cater to those sensibilities perfectly i have no sympathy for your bad food experience david um but thirdly and more seriously davos this time round, just in terms of a pure sort of news measurement i think got less into the news than i can remember it um, having been in the news. It's caused a bigger impact, the discussions there in previous years than it did this time. And that might be because there are so many big events that obviously absorbed a lot of your time um, in Davos happening elsewhere. The the Trump, you know, build up to Iowa, the Trump cruise build up being one of them, the concern over China and the ructions and the volatility in global markets being another. And from what I understood in terms of the economic conversation coming out of Davos was that you have a lot of non-market players 
in Davos, chief executives and political leaders and journalists saying, ah, it's actually not nearly as bad as the markets are signaling that it is. And you've got the markets essentially giving Davos the middle finger by carrying on as normal. So are we saying then, is Davos over? Is that kind of what I'm hearing from you guys, that the era of Davos has become too big to be effective? Because, David, I kind of want to go back to something that you said when I was talking about what the women's role in the workplace is going to be for this you know, fourth industrial revolution. Everything I read seemed to indicate that more women than men um, will lose jobs as a result of this more automation of services and industry, that these are jobs that um, are disproportionately affecting lower middle income women um, and that they are going to be out of these jobs. So are you saying that the people who make those decisions were not at Davos and that's why this is not uh, a discussion that was meaningful at all? Well, look, I, I, first of all, I didn't say the discussion wasn't meaningful, although the discussion really wasn't that meaningful. The, you know, the, the, as far as the, the women not being there, they're actually not going to make these decisions. The men who run these companies are going to make these decisions. And no big surprise, you know, women are going to suffer from that. Although I have to say, you know, this whole fourth industrial revolution thing, you know, it's a nice label. It's like any kind of McKinsey report. It's like, well, what's going to happen? And it's a little bit like globalization. You know, that was very hot in the 90s, although it's also been hot for the past 15,000 years since the entire story of history is globalization. <laughs> um, and, you know, the same goes true with the information revolution and the transportation revolution and the productivity revolution. Now, are we at a tipping point? Are we going to move into an era in which some big things change as a result of this? Yes. Uh, does calling it the fourth industrial revolution materially change our understanding of it in any substantial way? No. Are the people who are most likely to be impacted negatively participants in this discussion? No. Are the people who are most likely to be driving the innovations and in changing the world or changing the way we look at the world there? No. For the most part, they're not. So. You know, it's 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 a little bit one of those discussions where people hear what they want to hear, which goes back to Ed's point. I kept hearing people go, oh, the world is a mess. The Middle East is a mess. Chinese markets are a mess. But for me, everything's going to be great. And in a way, that's kind of the theme of Davos this year and in past years, because you got a bunch of rich people who figured out how to make a lot of money when the world is going to crap, because always some part of the world is going to crap, and they make their money, and they you know, continue on, and they've learned how to immunize themselves from these you know, sort of ongoing volatility of the planet, um, of the planet Earth. Now, Chinese market ructions are different from U.S. market ructions because, of course, the Chinese stock market doesn't really have that much to do with the Chinese overall economy, uh, and the U.S. market has more to do with it, and global markets are obviously a significant um, um, indicator. Um, but honestly, I think the discussion in Davos was a little bit flat. On the, on the World Economic Forum website, I don't know whether you've looked at that, uh, Lara or David, but it's worth uh, looking at the 30 top quotes. Boy, are you from... a nerd. And I've got to say, you know, this just goes back to our core audience. You know, we've been talking about this a lot, and our core audience is a bunch of nerds who really don't, you know, I mean, they're like sitting there going, oh, I can't wait, a foreign policy podcast. I mean, Look, we, this what would could be, be a lamer way be... to spend your time? But you're actually going a step further and going to the World Economic Forum 
website. Yeah, but but I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna make your point to the nerdiest to the king of nerds living in the um, kingdom of Nerdistan. Um, th- I want to note that I am no part of this conversation read, whatsoever. You, you, reading these thirty you, quotes Jakes, is a sleeping Jakes, pill. You Jakes <laughs> are the nerdiest of nerds, but please oh, go, please. go 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 ahead. Anyway. Now, Lara, if Lara does, I don't believe it, fit that description. Lara would honestly trouble with insomnia by quote 12, you'll be fast asleep. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know whether these quotes are representative of the quality of discussion because, you know, clearly there's a lot of very high powered people. There are Christine Lagarde's there, the, you know, there are Aaron Jaitley's, there are David Rothkoff's, I, exactly. I hasten to, to add. And therefore, I would. I would imagine it was an uh, unimaginative person selecting the top 30 quotes, but they were, I mean, they were one giant sleeping pill. Like, hit me up with one. Oh, um, paraphrased. Uh, you know, technology is the future of tomorrow, or, Blah. you know, cognitive thinking is, it's like, really? It's like, I mean, you know, MBA you know students. Today, you know the sun will rise in the east and set in the west. Right. Thank you for spending how many tens of thousands of dollars for coming you to Davos? You know what's Here's worse than the, the quotes from Davos? If you really want to, like, punish yourself for something you did bad as a child, go back and read the tweets of the, you know, sort of self promoting jerks who are at Davos talking about. Well, here I am at Davos, and I've just heard something very interesting. Productivity may rise, and technology will play a part in this. You know, and it's like, yeah. oh, really, thank you very much. You know, um, but th- yes, the quotes were kind of boring. There were a couple of little interesting incidents from some very surprising places. So I was dragged to go and see Joe Biden, the vice president of the United States, give opening remarks. You know, now when the opening remarks come from the vice president of anywhere, that's a bit of a warning sign, you know, that Klaus Schwab is not getting the people he wants. But here he's the vice president of the United States and, you know, he stands up and he starts to give a talk. And at the beginning of the talk, you think, well, this is just Biden being kind of folksy and kind of accessible and articulate and kind of making his points. But then, you know, He got kind of interesting because he gave a real liberal speech in which he sort of said, look, you guys are the guys who are running the world. Inequality is a problem. Infrastructure is a problem. We've got some real problems creating jobs. You're the ones who are going to have to do it. It's not going to be easy for you. You're going to have to give up. And the room got very, very quiet. And it was really interesting to see a guy like Joe Biden with nothing to lose going in there and essentially speaking truth to power to a bunch of CEOs who really were discomfited by the whole thing. Um, and, 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 and it was kind of great because, you know, here was, here was Uncle Joe being, you know, kind of a hero in front of these people. And um, at the end of it, you know, there was, you know, polite applause and so forth. But um, he, 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 he made an impact because he didn't waste the chance to give a speech telling these people that if they didn't get off the track that they were on, we were going to have worse problems due to inequality and lack of job creation and so forth. Yeah, that um, that sounds like um, a speech that the the Davos elite need to keep hearing. Um, um, so it's refreshing to to hear that. Um, unfortunately, it didn't get much coverage. No, no, no it, and right. Go, go ahead, on. David. No, no, no Laura, please. No, no, after you, please. then I will. Uh, I thought I was the British person here. (laughs) So, you know, I'm just listening to this conversation. I I didn't really pay attention to Biden's speech in Davos, but I did pay attention to um, uh, some words, or maybe it was one of the infamous quotes that you're talking about, Ed, about the CEO of Chobani, the uh, Greek yogurt guy, right? 
And so Turkish, he, yeah. It, well, it, yeah, Turkish Greek yogurt. Sorry, okay. yeah, yeah. Greek. He's Turkish, but yeah. Greek yogurt. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Um, the we're about Cip- to start the Cypriot, a war the here. Cypriot yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> Turkish Greek yogurt named after the a place in, named yogurt. after a place in, in Syria. But yeah, go on. <laughs> so the yogurt guy, right? So um, he's saying one way we can help solve the refugee problem is to give more jobs to refugees. So it sounds like David he is taking some of Biden's words to heart. But then you think about it's really the governments that have to approve the work permits for some of these refugees. It's the government that have to let some of these refugees in. And we're seeing all over Europe and, by the way, in the United States, that governments are not doing that, that political candidates are blocking that from happening. And so it seems like this really, you know, spiraling, revolving door that we're talking about here. If government says, hey, CEOs, you need to pick up the slack, and the CEOs say, yeah, but we can't because the governments are, you know, binding our hands, what's the solution out of that? Going back to something I said earlier, I didn't hear any solutions about refugee problems coming out of Davos. I heard a lot of hand wringing. No, and, no, you know, there was a lot of. Senati- yeah, no, there please, was a David, lot. Please, David, go ahead. No, no, please. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Somebody <laughs> accused me on Twitter of interrupting the women on this podcast, and I, you know, that I was a sexist as a result of this. Although, typically, it's more women than men on the podcast. So, Laura, finish, please. Oh, I forgot what I was. saying. I think you should both go ahead before me. <laughs> So anyways, I just think that there was a lot of hand-wringing, not a whole lot of solutions, and in that kind of environment, nothing will ever get done. No, no. And in fact, you know, if you had a side discussion, as I did with a lot of people, and say, what are the big problems facing the world? One of the big problems facing the world is a decaying belief in institutions, institutions everywhere, whether it's government institutions or church institutions or labor uh, unions or other kinds of institutions. There's this sort of a decaying belief. And then there's the growing disconnect with millennials, who, by the way, are hardly represented at a place like Davos. Um, and as I said, it was you know only sort of bootlicking, tree-climbing millennials that were there to begin with, the kind that you wouldn't <laughs> want to have anything to do with. But, but in any event, they're not represented at these things. And you're right, Laura. There's, you know, there's politicians who aren't trusted and are not coming up with solutions and business people who are self-dealing and are not coming up with solutions. And then they you know, get in a few other dancing monkeys who are thoughtful people who come in and say there's a problem. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. And then they say, well, we're trying to improve the world by noting that there's a problem and there's not a lot of problem solving going on. But, Ed, you touched upon one of the things that was the big story. In fact, I would say, based on my wandering around in search of food, which was unsuccessful, uh, and warmth, likewise unsuccessful in Davos, that the big story to me in Davos was what you wrote your column this week about, and that was Donald Trump. So I'm at a lunch full of sort of hotsy-totsy types of people, and a guy stands up at the lunch, and he's like a big-time pundit. Um, to the extent that such a thing exists. And the big-time pundit stands up and he goes, here is how Donald Trump is going to win the nomination. He's going to win Iowa, and by the time some of the people listen to this, that will have happened. He's going to win New Hampshire, and once he wins those things, he's going to be unstoppable, as Ted Cruz said. And then he's going to go on, and he's going to face a Hillary Clinton who's been weakened by the Bernie Sanders stronger-than-expected campaign. And it is not inconceivable that Donald Trump beats Hillary Clinton. And I got to tell you, this was a room. It was a couple hundred people in it, most of them foreign. And there was this sharp intake of breath. And, and it literally was palpable. It was like, holy crap. And um, the, I don't want to quote anybody, but let's say possibly it was one of your colleagues, Ed, who stood up and said, gee, America faces the prospect 
of a choice between a fascist and a socialist, and again, sharp intake of breath, people are really scared shitless over the prospect of a Donald Trump um, uh, presidency. Yeah, I think I know which um, Harvard-tenured CNN contributor you're talking about who made that point, um, uh, or who gave the talk. Um, but the uh, look, you mean the unnamed, tall, bald Harvard-tenured CNN contributor who served four or five presidents? That one exactly, and who's very good at sort of um, helping uh, retrieve a flailing presidency. But I mean, that could be any number of people, David. I mean, we haven't narrowed this down at all. Um, Exactly. um, The scared shitless point, you know, I think might be slightly overdone. It is very true that in the last two, three weeks, the Republican establishment, whatever that is and whatever that means, um, has been, has pivoted from denying that in any possible parallel universe Donald Trump could be nominee to saying, can I please be your Treasury Secretary? Um, and that's been a quite extraordinary sea change. Um, pragmatic would be a polite word for it. Um, that signals, I think, you know, um, just as much misjudgment as denying Donald Trump would ever get anywhere exhibited in the first place. There's been a swing from one to the other without any resting place in the middle ground. And so I understand. Although I, I, I do think the idea of Donald Trump becoming president and Miss Universe being on our currency is a kind of an interesting prospect that we ought to all consider. Well, I, I think I think the dollar. Well, I don't know. The dollar's already appreciating. What would that do to the dollar? Yeah, well, uh, I, I've not thought that one no. through. Yeah. No, Just, I think we should keep Alexander Hamilton on the ten dollar bill. Um, okay, but the that's, um, that's a popular. If, if Trump, if that's the alternative, um, but uh, the 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 we idea... could talk about how overrated Hamilton, by the way, is as a musical, and what a farce it is to say that it's breakthrough because they referred they went into rap to essentially redo what regular musicals have done all along, and it's not very good rap, and it's kind of a crappy musical that it's easy for liberals who want to seem a little bit fresher um, than they actually are to love. But let's set that aside. Go back to your point. Well, um, all I I would say is that if the unnamed Harvard professor who contributes to CNN and saves flailing presidencies is right and Trump could be nominee, which of course he could and might well probably be, and could be president. The scenarios under which he would be, I think, would be any two of the following three. One, Hillary Clinton has uh, not just an FBI recommendation to the DOJ to prosecute her, but actually the DOJ takes it up, pretty unlikely. Two, Michael Bloomberg enters the race and splits the vote. Three, there's a major terrorist attack sometime between now and November. I think two of those three at minimum, if not three out of three, would have to happen for the two-thirds of America that hate Donald Trump's guts to convert into a Donald Trump majority by November. And I think people in Davos and here, including former you know, presidential nominee Bob Dole, underappreciate the degree to which the negative approvals of Donald Trump are more geologically sound than you know, some of the hardest rock formations in the in, in the Himalayas. This would be really hard to shift. He he would have to have a string of improbable events to win the presidency. Uh, well, first of all, I don't consider terrorist attack an improbable event. I consider that actually a likely event. Fair enough. Um, whether Hillary Clinton needs to actually have a Justice Department bring action against her, or could have any of a number of calamities misfall her, other kinds of scandals, a campaign that just sort of splutters along, lack of enthusiasm, uh, some other related issue. I I don't know. 
the, the Bloomberg thing is quite interesting, but he has said, I think, that he is not going to run if Hillary Clinton runs. Um, what, is, what does this all look like to you, Laura? I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot about Super Tuesday in the last couple of days, right? I mean, really? Really? Like, really? <laughs> yeah, obsessively. I lie awake at night and I think about New York and California and all of the podcast listeners we have in both of those states. Yeah, um, right. all, seven, all seven of them <laughs> yeah. sitting there sipping Chardonnay, hoping for their latest anime magazine to arrive at their house. But you know, go on. So, you know, Super Tuesday, I think it's it's probably – Clinton's to lose Super Tuesday on the Democratic side, um, which is why, you know, she may be worried about Iowa right now, but her organization traditionally has put a lot, and her husband's organization has put a lot of stake in the super blue states. Um, so she will probably be okay there. I don't know who Bloomberg pulls more from if he does get into the race. And I still think it is a huge if. I mean, he's flirted with this before. I think it's interesting that he says that he's got candidates in all 50 states and trying to figure out how they can get on the ballot, if they can collect enough signatures to do that. Um, it does seem like he would pull more from the Democrats, being he himself being such a, a mainstream slash liberal left of center Republican, than he would from the Republican primary, which seems so far more to the right. Um, it doesn't seem like those people would go for him anyway, with him being supportive of gun control and all of that. Um, so I just I just don't know what that looks like after Super Tuesday. If she gets enough of uh, delegates to pretty much clinch up the, the nomination, if you have a Cruz or a Trump who is so far to the other side as a result of that process, um, I suppose he pulls more from from the Dems. I think that's right. Um, I, I mean, I honestly think that, you know, somebody who's pro-gun control, pro-immigration, pro-trade, pre free trade pacts, including TPP, uh, for lower sugar consumption, is not going to be stealing any votes from Trump. It's that sugar consumption that really it's the, gets it's it, the too. It's the big gulp, whatever they're called. Right. Right. That's the bumper sticker that you see out in Idaho these days. Absolutely. Um, um, so I think, you know, he would have the mo most realistic prospect of winning New York State, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. He wouldn't win New York State in practice. But I think uh, the, the areas where he'd be competitive are areas where Hillary is strong. You know, you've got to say there's really something great about the United States of America where it seems like one possible scenario is that you could have three people from New York State, huh. two billionaires and a centimillionaire, as our big, wide, diverse choice to be president of the United States. So representative of America, right? Well, so, well, so yeah. there's another uh, um, you know, contrarian thought, or maybe not so contrarian anymore, that were Sanders the nominee and were Bloomberg therefore that much likely to throw his hat in the, in the ring. We've got two Upper East Side billionaires in the race and Sanders, whose whole narrative is about how billionaires run and control our democracy. I would have thought that would be a super validation, not one that would get Sanders to the White House, um, but one that would um, greatly energize his supporters by, by demonstrating his point. There will be a herd of unicorns grazing on the South Lawn of the White House before Bernie Sanders 
uh, serves there as president of the United States. Well, that's States. an interesting question, David. David and Lara, interested. You, your probability of Trump getting possibility, your odds on Trump versus Sanders? David, you go. Oh, it's not even, not even, I think Trump is right now the most likely Republican candidate. And I think Sanders has the chance of becoming president of the United States that, you know, any inmate at Alcatraz does. <laughs> and Alcatraz is empty. David, I've heard you say before, and not too long ago, that you thought that Rubio was going to be the uh, the nominee for the Republicans. Given, I mean, I assume you're, you're changing your tune on that because he's not performing very well at all in Iowa um, and I guess in New Hampshire as well. I think he's at 13 percent nationwide or something compared to the 30s for Trump and Cruz. Is that your reasoning, kind of early polls in these early states, or you just don't think he's uh, electable? No. First of all, I deny categorically that I've ever said anything before. Oh. Um, <laughs> anything at all, huh? Anything at all. Um, <laughs> just I, I want to sort of start out with a sweeping denial here. But but, but um, secondly, no, I, you know, look, I, I, I still think that another unnamed character who was at this unnamed lunch where this unnamed person stood up um, and made this assertion. I thought Davos uh, had it was right. all big names, and that was the whole point of going to Davos. These you are throw big your names. name around, these, so we're what we're playing patty these, cake these and are, not naming these people. These are these are yeah no I'm not going to well because people whose names rhyme with Schmavid Schmerman. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, we, we didn't say that, and I'm certainly not going to refer to this person who said this, who was until very recently a candidate for president. Um, who said, I will be playing in the NBA before Donald Trump is president of the United States. And I think, you know, I still, my, there's still, my, my gut is that that's right, because I still think what's going to happen is Trump's going to win one or two of these things, as often happens. And let's remember, you know, the great past of Pat Robertson and um, Rick, Santorum. Um, Rick Santorum, your your friend Rick Santorum and, and others, um, you know, doing pretty well. And and then all of a sudden, a bunch of other people are going to do pretty badly, which is just as significant. And then they're going to say they can't win and they're going to leave. And all of a sudden, somebody, and it may be Rubio or it may be Kasich, is going to go and look like the potential opposition here. And 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 something will coalesce around them. And, you know, the, the, the Republican Party establishment is desperate for anybody else. And you know, Trump is, in some respects, a really, really terrible candidate. He has no experience. He's a jerk. He says ridiculous things all the time. He's a semi-fascist. He's a racist. You know, I mean, I would think those things at some point or another are going to, um, you know, come back to haunt him. Um, also, the people of Iowa and the people of New Hampshire have proven time and time again, particularly the people of Iowa, that it's a great thing that they do not pick the president of the United States because they pick really terrible people, particularly in Iowa, um, to be their their nominees. And let us um, go ahead. Yeah, no, go on. No, I was just going to say, let us not forget what Iowa what Iowa is in terms of this first caucus. It is a beauty pageant. These are not binding elections. So nobody's going to win any delegates at this, which is really, really important. This is a straw poll that is more symbolic than anything else. And, you know, I think all three of us have been following or covering presidential campaigns for, you know, decades now. And um, 
this is kind of the nature of campaigns. Um, candidates flow up and they flow down. You know, one guy gets to be the front runner for a couple of weeks and then he gets knocked down and the next person gets to be front runner for a few weeks and then she gets knocked down. This is a very cyclical horse racy type game, which is one of the major criticisms of the way um, the media covers these campaigns, because we like winners, right? We want to kind of back a winner. We like the underdogs, and we like to see how the underdogs succeed as winners until they fall on their well, faces actually, again. And actually, what we really like are good stories. And so we tend to go and try and get drawn to the good story. Um, you know, and that, you know, for a while was Rudolph Giuliani, and for a while it was Rick Santorum, and for a while it was Pat Robertson, and once upon a time it was Pat Buchanan who was a better story. And, you know, you end up with kind of ridiculous people being up on top early. You know, I mean, everybody has a story. There was a wonderful book that was published about the 1988 campaign, um, Richard Ben Kramer, a book by the name of What It Takes. And if anybody has not read this book and cares about presidential campaigns, I highly suggest you read it. It's beautifully written. It's got a lot of gossip in it. You will learn everything that you never knew about Joe Biden, about Dick Gephardt, about Bob Dole, about George Herbert Walker Bush. I mean, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Everybody has a good story because people are complex. But, you know, I mean, this is that's what this campaign season is. It's uh, months of telling people stories and, you know, in some ways making them seem slightly better and in some other cases seem slightly worse than who they are. People almost become caricatures of themselves because it's hard to sum up people's stories, their life stories in a matter of weeks or a matter of column inches. And, and it, it has the advantage, the Ben Kramer book, of being even shorter than, than War and Peace. <laughs> it's um, only 1,500 so, pages, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so let's, yeah, right. And Laura's not a nerd. You know, <laughs> she, she wouldn't read a 1,500-page book on the 19th. There is so campaign. much dirt in this book. You do, I mean, anybody should read this book. I, I have to say, yeah. I want to be one a, sl a mildly contrarian voice to what Lara has very um, oh. eloquently put. Um, I, I do think this time is different. I, I don't think that means Trump or Cruz will be the nominee or Sanders, let alone Sanders. But I do think that it's not like one guy's the flavor of the month or the flavor of the two-week period. The, the Trump has been the flavor for, for eight months now. Fair enough, yeah. And he's the most unlikely... As as David put it, sort of semi-fascist figure to be leading the the GOP, and and um, that's different. If, if you that's had, different. If you had written a screenplay in which you created a character like Donald Trump because you wanted to parody what's wrong with America, and you said, "I'm going to get a bloviating billionaire with bad hair and a bad track record with women and sleazy businesses and mob ties and all sorts of other kinds of things in his past." And I'm going to go and I'm going to have him win simply because he is telegenic and the camera likes him and TV news teams cover him around the clock and let him sort of set the agenda. Um, and it is he's going to be empty and vapid and it's all going to be about emotion. You would reject this story. And Tim Robbins would have turned would. down the role. It, well, and he wouldn't be over the top enough to play this yeah. role. You know, I mean, it's it's it, this is just... Uh, you know, amazing. But having said that, Ed, since you've written about this for one of the most prestigious and august publications in the world, and since you don't, you're not sure how this is going to pan out, uh, you know, or whether it's going to follow the, the path everybody thinks, 
What do you think is going to happen? Well, we were asked, I mean, for, for what it's worth, at the beginning of the year, the FT's always asked, we're always asked to give our predictions for 2016. And mine was on the who's going to be the next president. And my prediction um, was that the general election will be Hillary Clinton versus Ted Cruz. And Hillary will win. It'll look closer than it is. She'll actually win by a 1964 scale landslide. Um I'm still confident that um, I would bet, not confident, but I would still bet that Hillary is the next president. Um, I'm not so confident of, of who she's going to defeat in a landslide. Um, I, would be, I would be less confident of her being the next president if by some very unlikely means in the next two months Marco Rubio becomes the, her opponent because I think he could give her a pretty close run. All right, Laura, we're coming here to the end of this particular episode of this podcast, which people have been waiting for because I've been off at Davos and there have been holidays and there's a gap and there's a lot of hunger for this podcast. So I suspect some people will be <laughs> listening to it over and over again. When they get to this point for the third or fourth time, what are they going to hear you predict? Well, I mean, we're on the urge of on the verge of people, you know, actually voting about this stuff. And and so, you know, it's now it's time to you know make some predictions. You know, I, I'm not really comfortable doing that. I feel I'm too much of a reporter to be a soothsayer. I'm not a columnist. I, I do think that at some point in this process, Americans will get off of that kind of Hollywood screenplay that you were describing earlier of, you know, what makes um, – what is the seemiest, kind of sexiest – crazy story candidate that uh, Americans can nominate or elect. You know, I am, I'm kind of reminded of something that James Carvel once said, and this is going to horribly uh, massacre in a paraphrase, but he, I, I think it was Carvel who said that Americans want the John Wayne of candidates, you know, they want somebody who's strong but sensitive, they want somebody who's good-looking, um, they want somebody who's going to be kind but tough when they need to be. Um, I, I don't know that any of the current candidates fit that exactly, but I, I do think that Americans, the ones who go to the polls, want somebody who's smart and want somebody who can hold themselves up well and want somebody who can represent the United States well abroad. I do in my heart believe that. Who that person is going to be, you know, I think there are a couple of people out there who do fit that bill and some people out there who do not. But Come I'm not going to say who I think. <laughs> that sounds like Ed's description of David Gergen. You just described Hillary Clinton and no other candidate. <laughs> I'm sorry, who? No, I, uh, I, I, I didn't. I, there's some interference on the line, David. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you, folks, I'm going to sum it up for you here as we conclude this particular uh, episode of the podcast by saying – that the person who will win in the November election in 2016 will be, as is almost always the case, the person who makes Americans feel best about themselves, most optimistic about the future, and best positions themselves as an outsider and an alternative to the Washington mess. And it is the person who's going to you know, do those three things the best who will win. And that's why, despite the fact that she's a Washington insider, um, I think Hillary Clinton is going to end up winning because she certainly is going to provide a more optimistic vision than the hate-filled, anger-filled vision of the leading Republican candidates. And at the same time, 
Um, she, I think, will increasingly position herself as a woman and an advocate for disenfranchised groups. And even though she is part of the most important, you know, political dynasty of there and has been in Washington for a long time, she's going to become seen as a voice for groups that have been let drift by Washington. Um, and at the end of the day, that's why she's going to win. Um, having said that, it's easy. Um, to test this out. Just uh, you know, keep listening to this podcast for another 11 months and we'll tell you who won the election and then you'll know. Um, and, I mean, there are probably other ways to know, but this is far more entertaining, particularly when we're joined by people like Lara and Ed, whom I thank. Uh, and for the rest of you, I, I ask that you come back next week. We will have another lively discussion on some subject uh, that will be of great interest um, to you, and we'll make you sound very smart at cocktail. Which parties. is all so, what we aspire to for be, the ER really. podcast. <laughs> that is all that there is, Laura. Thank you very much, <laughs> and we will join you again you. soon. Bye. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP. And to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>